3, verses 14 through 21, uh, and then we will read the text from Romans a bit later uh, in the sermon. But those are the two primary texts we'll be dealing with this morning. And I'll bring the text up uh, on the screen, and it's from the English Standard Version, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So some things we take as traditional were quite controversial in their own day. For instance, the song, O Holy Night, has been sung by, uh, by um, uh, um, all kinds of famous singers. Uh, and, uh, and, but it, it, the song itself actually has a bit of a wild history to it. Uh, it finds, the song itself finds its origins in a small town in France back in 1847 when a priest uh, asked a local poet, lawyer, and wine merchant to write a song to commemorate the new organ for the church. Now, that was a big deal. You're like, I don't, some of you might be like, I don't even like organs. But to get a new organ, I mean, they hadn't had a new organ since like the 1700s. So it's like, it was like the first new piece of equipment in, in like about 100 years. So they're pretty pumped about this. And so the poet, uh, and so Placide Capau, which wins the award for the most French name ever, uh, he was uh, in his mid to late 30s. Uh, I said Capau, it's Capau, Capau. Uh, and uh, was, he wrote the song, uh, and he was able to, uh, uh, to wrangle a well-known composer that was a friend of a friend of his uh, and to write the music for it uh, named Adolphe Adam. The song was sung by, uh, in the church uh, by an opera singer, and all was well and good. Uh, the song, in fact, uh, quickly spread to uh, surrounding areas, uh, but the lyrics of the song were quite different than the version that we sing today in America. Uh, the, the first stanza, for instance, reads the, the, this way. Midnight Christians in the solemn hour, when God a, as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his father, the entire world thrills with hope on the night that gives it a savior. 
pretty different <laughs> than, than O Holy Night. <laughs> the stars are brightly shining, right? So the title of the original song is taken from the first line, which is, it was known not as O Holy Night, but as Midnight Christians. And it's a poem that actually, if you go through the stanzas, tends to go after the powerful and the wealthy in society, which is not surprising since Blessed Day was not particularly religious and apparently later renounced the church to join a socialist movement. The song uh, later was even banned uh, from churches in France uh, uh, for a while. But if this is the case, then how did we get the version that we sing today? Uh, For that, we go to the Unitarian minister in Massachusetts named John Sullivan Dwight. And of course, you're saying, oh, him, right? He came across this song, Midnight Christians, in 1855, and he translated it into English, and he took some poetic license in how he translated the verses uh, into what we have today. Uh, for instance, you know, I read the stanza from the original, now hear the stanza from, uh, from the one he translated. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. O night, O holy night, O night divine. This is a song that celebrates the birth of Christ. The wonder and awe of the revelation of salvation in the Son of God, long promised, finally revealed on that blessed night. And this is the month in which we uh, seasonally take to celebrate that reality. And so we're actually going to take much of the first stanza of the song, O Holy Night, as our theme this month. And beginning today, and highlighting, uh, it as considering the, the significance of the birth of Christ, particularly through the line, long lay the world in sin and error pining. What does it mean to pine? To pine for something is to painfully miss or to long for the return of something lost. And today we're going to focus on two things with relation to pining. First, why the world is pining in the first place, and secondly, what exactly it is that the world is pining for. And so we'll look at each in turn. But for the first, we turn to the passage in Genesis 3 that we read and to find out why the world is pining. And in the world is pining, we see in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 21, for three reasons. First, uh, because of the deception of the serpent. God made the world with man and woman in holiness and righteousness. Uh, But Satan entered the garden and deceived Eve and and convincing her that, that God was holding out on her and Adam and convincing her that the fruit of the tree was, was, was good for wisdom and desirous. And so even though it was forbidden, uh, and so she was to take it and she took it and she ate it 
And that's when we find out that Adam was standing there doing nothing, being a good for, the first good for nothing husband right there, Adam, all right, standing right there. Uh, and uh, it, it actually reminds me of, uh, if you're watching usually like a comedy TV show, and they do a comedic moment where they have two characters and they're talking and they're reacting to each other, and then they suddenly pan out and there's other people in the room, you know, and that's the joke. And so it's like, that's, it's like you, see the, you see it close, close cropped on the serpent and Eve, and then all of a sudden it just pans out and there's Adam right there next to Eve, just kind of like looking off, like, I don't know what's going on, right? Adam did nothing. Adam said nothing, but instead he ate the fruit that his wife gave him in direct disobedience to God's command. And as the sin proceeded from the serpent to the woman and to the man, so did God address each of them in turn. And so he says three things to the serpent here. First, God said to the serpent that he was cursed and that he would go about on his belly as a symbol of that curse. Secondly, He says in verse 15 that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. For the woman and the serpent had essentially teamed up in rebellion against God. And so God said he would not allow that to continue. He would, in fact, put hostility between the serpent and the woman, between his line and her line. And third, as a result of that, one would come from her offspring that would bruise the head of the serpent That would indeed crush the serpent, even though he would bruise his heel. And indeed, this is what we see in the scriptures. We see the line of promise uh, in Eve that is traced throughout the Christian scriptures. It's it's throughout, and and that line of promise is in constant friction and hostility against what we would call the offspring of Satan. We see it in Egypt. We see it in Cain. We see it in Ishmael. We see it in, in the nations that are against Israel when they come into the land. We see it in, uh, in Assyria and Babylon. These are the cursed line of the serpent that are battling against the line of promise that comes through Abraham and is ultimately traced back to Eve. We see it even in the church in the world today. And so, we have, and so we have the deception of the serpent is the, is the first reason why the world is pining. Secondly, uh, is, and, and well, I'm going to take second and third actually come, come together, is the pain of childbirth and labor, not the labor of childbirth. That Yes, that is laborious. We're talking about the, the labor that he addresses with the man, why the earth is cursed. In verses 16 to 21, to the woman, God said that he would multiply the pain of childbearing. And notice how he says, through her line, one would come who would crush the serpent, but the one will come through that line by the way of pain. That, that the actual the means by which the deliverer would come is also cursed with pain. Because uh, to bring forth generation after generation will come forth in pain. The mother's labor, labor's pains then and even today serve as a symbol of the sinful condition of the world that every child is born into. Further, the relationship between husband and wife, he says, will be marked by animosity and difficulty. To the man, God declared the ground and all labor cursed all the days of our lives. What yielded so swiftly and fruitfully now 
can only come by blood and sweat and tears and often only produces largely thistles and thorns. What is more, death is now appointed for every man. For we live and we are dust and we return to the dust. And so the world then is pining for the lifting of the curse because of sin. Milton's famous poem, Paradise Lost, says it all in the title. This is effectively, in a sense, what creation is pining for, what the world has been pining for ever since Genesis 3, but as we'll see when we get to the second point in the text of Romans, that is an incomplete picture of what we are pining for. But the world is, at least in part, pining for what was lost when Adam and Eve fell into sin. The world is longing for work to not simply have mere flashes and moments of satisfying joy, but to be truly satisfying every day. The world is longing for the pain of childbearing to come to an end. The world is longing for relationships, uh, not only in marriage, but even for brother, brother, uh, relationships between brother and brother to be brought into peace and reconciliation. The world is longing for the one of Eve's line to be revealed that will crush the serpent. And we are told in the scriptures, we celebrate at Christmas that reality, that which the world was longing for since the fall for thousands of years has now come forth into the world. The light has shone in the darkness and the Savior has been revealed. He has been born on this side of the Advent, on this side of the revelation of the one from the line of Eve who will crush the serpent who has been revealed now in Jesus Christ, we await the second Advent. We wait for the actual return of Christ and the true crushing of the serpent, for that is what he will do when he returns. And so the simple and basic truth of Genesis 3 is, is that the world is longing for something that was lost because of sin. Sin is the reason that the world pines. And you don't have to be a Christian to know it. You don't have to be a Christian to know there is something deeply wrong with the world. We see the destruction, the devastation, the inhumanity, the death all around us. We see it in our own cities. We see it in our own families. We see it in the darkness of our own hearts and minds. Even in the most affluent country in the history of the world, do we find greater happiness than in any other time and in all other countries? No. What are we talking about? Epidemics of depression and suicide, especially amongst our youngest and healthiest. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. But there is hope. There is hope even in the text of Genesis for immediately following the curses that God laid out because of sin. Adam gave his wife a name, Eve. He did so because, the text tells us, she was the mother of life. She was the mother of all the living. Adam named his wife in faith 
in view of the promise of God, because of the promise of God. And as if to certify this promise, God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with clothing as he sent them out of the garden into a fallen world. But the world is pining, we must be clear, because of sin. And we've partially answered the question, but we need to dive into it more fully now, which is, what is it that the world is actually pining for? Not the fallen world, but when we talk about long lay the world and sin and error pining. We talk about what is, what is, that, what is it that the world is pining for? And here we turn to the book of Romans in chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we did not, do not see, we wait for it with patience. We might be tempted to think that the church is longing for Eden, longing for that paradise that was lost. There is a truth, there is a degree of truth in that, but that is incomplete. Because the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation begins in a garden, but ends in a city. There is a development. There is a movement. There is expansion and growth and complexity that is brought to the picture of redemption. And so in this, in this vein, uh, the Apostle Paul declares to us that the creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, he begins by stating that his estimation, as he looks out on the sufferings of the present time in the fallen world, which we have to be careful to define suffering uh, as, as the apostle defines it, not as we might define it. He, you know, the apostle Paul's sufferings are not, they, they, you know, I said skinny vanilla latte, not regular vanilla latte. You know, like that's, that's not the suffering he's describing. His suffering is shipwrecks and beatings and floggings, right? Those are the sufferings he's talking about. The stuff that, that is unthinkable for us. Those sufferings, he says, when he puts them all up and he puts them into the spreadsheet and he gives a numeric value to them and he, and he tallies them up. These are not worthy. They do not even register when you compare to the glory that is to be revealed to what's coming. And Paul tells us why. 
He gives us insight into the significance of Genesis 3. In the fall, he says, creation was subjected to futility, to frustration. It was done so, as he says, quote, in hope that creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom to the glory of the children of God. Now that is a, you could say, a pregnant verse with lots to unpack there, which we don't have time to do. But we must see here that creation's freedom from the bondage, its bondage to corruption comes through the glory of God's children entering the kingdom of God. The implication here is that creation will be redeemed in glory after or in second priority to God's people. And so creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God in resurrection and kingdom glory because that is the moment of creation's own renewal. Consider the intensity that he cites here of the groaning. All of creation groans. And all of creation has been groaning constantly and consistently like a mother in labor because of the corruption of sin. The world is not happy. Nature, though beautiful, is not right. Something is desperately wrong. And creation itself groans for redemption. And, and it will only, that redemption will only come through the revelation of the sons of God, so it longs for that. It's, but not only creation, Paul says, but he highlights in verse 23 that the church groans for the fullness of our adoption. When the song says, long lay the world, it, it includes cr- the created order suffering under the dominion of sin. But long lay the world would also include the church, God's own people. Now the song, of course, is, is speaking, O Holy Night, is speaking of the state of the world at the time of the birth of Christ. When the light of God came, and as John's gospel says, you know, shone in the darkness, that light came in, and that light was the life of men. Christ, of course, we note that, you know, did not fail in his mission to bring light and salvation into the world. But he came in and he began that process of redemption as the gospel continues to shine in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, as John says in his gospel. This is what we long for. We long for the light to dispel all the darkness. And this is what the Spirit ensures in us by indwelling in us, by securing us in the love and light of God. The church, the apostle says, is the one in which has the first fruits of the Spirit. That is the beginnings of the harvest. The harvest day will come, which is a biblical picture of judgment. The harvest day is the day of judgment. A day of glory and wrath where God's people will realize, will take hold of the fullness of our adoption when we receive our resurrection bodies. But Paul highlights that those who have the Spirit and who are the people of God yet groan inwardly, 
our bodies cry out, something's not right. And I think this speaks to the phenomena of aging. It was funny, I saw a graphic that said, the best way I can explain parallel lines is two arrows going this way, and the, and the bottom line is my age, and the top line is the age I consider old. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, because you're just like, when you're 15, you're like, 30? What do I need, a walker? You know, and it's like, and then when you're, now, you know, I'm like 41, I'm like, yeah, yeah, 60's pretty young, you know? So you seem pretty young, you know? You're pretty spry, you know? That's good, so... We look at ourselves in the mirror and we go, how did I get here? How did I get this old? Like, part of me still feels, like, part of me feels very young and a part of me feels very much not young, right? (laughs) But we are groaning inwardly as we long for the possession of our glorious resurrection bodies. And so Paul says in verses 24 and 25, We wait for what we cannot see presently. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Then he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. But the world, as Paul says, is still in sin and error pining for its renewal until the sons of God are revealed in the glorious return of Christ. And it is in this hope that we were saved. Not a hope that we would feel better about ourselves in the moment. Not even the hope that we would in, our, in this moment be forgiven of our sin. That is part of it. That is a key and crucial and necessary part of it, but not the whole. The hope that was revealed at the birth of Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, has revealed our salvation. Yet we hope in that which we do not see presently. Not just that we didn't see Jesus' birth or that we just didn't see Jesus' death on the cross or that we didn't see uh, Jesus' resurrection, but that we do not have what has been promised to us yet. That there's, there's more that God is doing for us. And we wait with patience for our hope to be revealed. This is the nature of Christian pining. It is not a despairing nostalgia to recover the past of our childhood. It is not a blind and foolish hope that things will work out in the end because of the goodness of men that will ultimately triumph. The fall set out, set, set out a, set the world on a course of pining, pining for that which was lost, pining for that which cannot be regained. We are all too familiar with the saying, you can never go home again. You cannot, and also, in, in, let's say you're in a relationship and, and you had a big falling out for many years, and then you finally come together, you reconcile. Well, you can't turn back the clock. You can't, we talk about, oh, well, we're going we're, we're to make up for lost time. You can't do that. All you can do is make the best use of the time you have and to establish a new relationship, a new life going forward. And so we can't go back, we can't recover, we can't relive the past as if we can have a time machine. Christian hope doesn't desire to do that. We don't want to go back to Eden. We want to go to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. That's where we want to go. We're not trying to recover Eden. We are seeking the city that is not built by human hands, whose architect and builder is God. 
And so Christmas time is, is often associated with darkness and winter uh, because that's seasonally when we celebrate it. Um, and, and the line of O Holy Night certainly captures this along with the fallen state of the world quite vividly. The world in sin and error was indeed pining until the Savior was revealed. And while the grace, light, and love of God entered the world, we yet pine for the heavenly glory and for darkness to be banished forever. Many pine for the things that they cannot have or have no reason to expect. But we pine for that which is promised, for that which is secured, for that which is sealed unto us by the very blood of the Son and by the Holy Spirit of God. And so while we may feel the darkness of the world encroaching it upon us, we may even feel the remnant of darkness in our own hearts of the flesh. Let us today remember the hope that is yet in us and the hope that will be made full before our eyes in the fullness of joy before us and for all of creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to worship you, to honor you, and and to reflect upon the salvation you have brought in your Son and the salvation you will bring in fullness when he returns. And we pray, Lord, that our remembrance of Christ's incarnation this month would not simply be an exercise in nostalgia, but it would be an exercise of reflecting upon the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and in humiliation came into the world and suffered and died and was raised to life that we who live yet in a fallen world would have hope and salvation in this life and that we would have the Spirit who seals the promises of grace poured into us that we may have hope always no matter what is going on in our lives. May we hold on to that hope and promise uh, today and tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.